This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to Part 10, Week 10 of our series, He Gave Us Stories, which is based on the parables of Jesus. And this week, we're coming to Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector. So it's another one of these twofer deals. You got two, <laughs> two short stories here, which interestingly enough seem unrelated to me. Uh, you know, the, the first one is about prayer and the second one is about the warning against self-righteousness and, mm-hmm. and treating each other with contempt. But Sam, the interesting thing about these two parables before we uh, just got to get into it a little bit. Both of them, Luke starts off with, on the first sentence, he tells them what the parable's about. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. unusual, isn't it? Yeah, I liked in your personal worship and your notes where you're like, this makes it really hard for somebody to, yeah. <laughs> to pull out the meaning of these things when Jesus blows the ending at the beginning. Normally, you can kind of tease it along and stretch it out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know where we're going because Jesus said up front where we're going, you know? Yeah. So it's very this unusual. Is, yeah. But it's it's right on, and the two parables, as we'll see when we get into it, they're they're not unrelated. Right. Um, Jesus is kind of checking our spirit after we hear the first one yeah. with the second one. Now, the interesting thing is the parable of the persistent widow, and people some people are probably familiar with that. Just at when I say that, the parable of the persistent widow, that you know is a is a parable about praying, in you know keeping constant in prayer and not mm-hmm. losing heart. And that's really what the parable was about last week. The friend at midnight was about continuing in prayer and not giving up and then recognizing that, you know, if if through persistence you could get your friend to like open the door or maybe he just opened the window and threw the loaves of bread out. I don't know what he did. But <laughs> yeah. if your friend met your need last week because of your your insistence, how much more will God do that? Well, that's kind of what's going on this week, although it's justice, mm-hmm. not loaves of bread that's being looked for. But the message, the core message feels very similar. And so I started personal worship this week with a day of sort of reflecting on this idea that God repeats himself a lot in the Bible. And that's true, isn't it? Yeah, he has to. <laughs> Look at his audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He does that quite a bit, you know, the and and it's more so to get our attention, you know. I've heard, I've heard pastors say, you know, that God not only is repeating himself in terms of themes of the parables and, you know, you'll see the laws kind of unpacked through the writings of Moses to where they're repetitive but they're kind of unfolding differently. You know, I've heard since I've been a Christian, you know, I've heard from multiple people that the gospel is something you need to preach to yourself every day. You know, that that you've got to remember every day that you've got to die to self, that your yep. identity's in Christ, that you have absolute security in his love. And and you need to remind yourself of who you are every day. Why is that? Because even though you know this stuff up in your head, you've got to go up into your brain and pull it out and preach it to your heart 
because the the tendency of of human beings is to have really really short term memories and how we apply the truth to our hearts. And so Jesus is is not ignorant of that, and so he he repeats himself quite often. You know, when we first come to faith, it's new. They, you know, Jesus talks about in Revelation when he's talking to the church at Laodicea, and he says, "You've lost your first love." Mm-hmm. Um, there is that that initial rush of this is new, this is marvelous, this is wonderful, and you don't have to necessarily be preaching to yourself as a deliberate conscious discipline because you're just doing it spontaneously. It's like you can't get enough of reading Bible passages and going to Bible studies and churches and adventure, and this is great because your faith is new and mm-hmm. you're excited by it all. And what happens if, as you, as you live years walking with the Lord, at some point we begin to take God for granted. We mm-hmm. begin, this just becomes the way our life is, mm-hmm. and, it, and, and it becomes part of the rhythm of life. It, we, we find ways to fit it in. Rather, rather than molding ourselves to the Christian walk, I have a feeling we, we tend to mold the Christian walk to ourselves, and that's when we need to become more disciplined about, as you say, preaching the gospel to ourselves, mm-hmm. preaching to ourselves all the time. You've got to die to yourself. If I'm not telling myself that constantly, then it's not in the forefront of my mind. And if it's not in the forefront of my mind, I'm doing a lousy job of it. Yeah, and it has to be in the forefront of your mind. There's When the Bible presents to us what the, the whole span of the Christian life looks like, you know, this current reality is is the difficult one. So, like, take take Moses for example. And I'm already off on a rabbit trail here. <laughs> Not that we've but, never we've never been known to rabbit trail before, Sam. <laughs> but if you look in the Book of Exodus, like the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going into the Promised Land is supposed to be like a historical, physical picture of what happens to us in our spiritual lives. And so, what what is what am I talking about? The Israelites are born into a land of slavery, born into a land associated with death. They have to be delivered by the blood being shed of the lamb. They're taken through the Red Sea, which the Bible compares to a baptism. They go out into the wilderness where they wander around for 40 years. And then Joshua, which is the Hebrew form of Yeshua, Jesus, leads them into the promised land. And so if you look at all that, it's kind of the the story of the Christian life, right? You're, You're born under the sentence of death and slavery. You have to be slain by, you know, you have to be saved by the shedding of blood of the the Lamb of God, then you're baptized into faith, and where are you now? Like, that's all really exciting. That would Mm -hmm. be wonderful to see all of the salvation and the miracles and the crossing of the Red Sea, but then he leads them into the wilderness, you know, where it's, it's not so exciting, where things get really hard, where you're reliant upon him for daily bread. There's, there's nothing you can do on your own. And they wander around for 40 years before they get to go into the promised land, which is their ultimate home or heaven for us by metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's and very instructional that we're, we're in the wilderness years. If, if the metaphor holds, you know, post-baptism, pre-heaven, we're in the wilderness years. And there's, there's something to that. That's why David, you know, you look at his Psalms and he writes more laments than almost anything else because this world – is difficult and it is hard. And so Jesus is coming and he's preaching these things and repeating them to us because you need that encouragement. You know, things are exciting at the beginning and then you kind of think, oh, you know, this this wilderness is really all there is. This is mm-hmm. what I'm getting used to. Right. 
and he needs to say, no, do not get content with the wilderness. Keep fixing your eyes on the promised land to come. Keep asking, keep hoping, keep praying, because there is a greater deliverance to come. Yeah. Um, the passage that uh, I, I was looking around for a good passage to give people to read for day one of personal worship, which was talking about this idea of repetition, because I, I you know, I knew we were going to get into a parable that was going to sound a lot like the parable that we just went through last week. And that's no accident. That's, you know, Jesus told two different parables about two different, you know, people with the same basic message. And so I found this passage in Mark 8 that comes on the heels of um, Jesus had just basically gotten into it with the Pharisees who were asking him one more time to give them a sign. That was a very common thing. Pharisees were like, you, Jesus, give us a sign. Um, and after that, uh, Mark eighteen, Mark eight, rather, beginning in verse fourteen, the disciples. It says, "Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat." And he cautioned them, and you, you know, he's like, "What's Jesus thinking about here?" Saying, "Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, which has nothing to do with bread, by the way." <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and then what did the disciples think? Leaven. Jesus is worried about the bread too. <laughs> And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, this is one of the funniest exchanges, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? You know, how many times do I have to do this miracle where I feed thousands of people with a small amount of food before you understand that I, the sovereign Lord, can provide your needs so you should stop worrying about them? And, and your answer to that when we talked about it earlier was, <laughs> one more time. <laughs> You know, and he's faithful and merciful to keep giving it one more time. Yeah. You know, and, and the same is true for us. Like when we take our eyes off the ball, when we're going through a dry spell, when our faith is, is failing or stumbling, like he is faithful to do it one more time. Yeah. You know, he keeps coming and reminding us and picking us up and encouraging our faith and bringing us along. You know, it's he's good like that. Yeah. And so – to talk about something just as a practical matter, sort of an outgrowth of that, um, you know, we're obviously we're encouraged to read the Bible daily, read the Bible every day. You should be, you should, you know, as I like to tell people, at some point each day, you should have a significant interaction, however you define that, with God's Word. Whether that's just if you're one of these folk that you sit down and just read several chapters because you're a reader, if you're a meditator where you read a few verses and really, you know spend time thinking about them. If you're somebody who prays scriptures, there's so many different ways that you can have a significant encounter with the Bible. But we do, we tell everybody, that's something that you should have on a regular daily basis. I remember when I was a, you know, a younger Christian, first, you know, first into the faith here, that one of the big emphases we had back then, there were two things that have that have both kind of maybe gotten out of favor now. But back then there were two big emphasis. Number one was memory verses. It was like, mm -hmm. want you to memorize scripture. And I'm telling you that to this day, 
you know, my wife and I were talking about that when I was working on study notes. We were talking about scripture memorization and how we were always urged and encouraged to memorize scripture. And I told her, I said, I can still quote at least the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians straight through. And so I just started rattling it off. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And I just went on and on and on and on and on. Um, And that was just something that was super important to us back then, was to memorize scripture. I feel like maybe that emphasis on uh, on memorizing scripture isn't so much a thing that that you just sort of generally hear the pastors and the Sunday school teachers and everybody, you know, kind of poking you and prodding you and saying you need to commit God's word to memory. And the other thing is that we used to we were always encouraged Sam to mark up our Bibles, highlight things on the page and write notes on the page and whatnot. And mm-hmm. and some of that goes on still and and some of it doesn't but but the reason that we were ch- told to do that is that when you would highlight a verse for example that that meant something to you, I might not be able to remember exactly what that verse said, but I can remember that it that the verse that talked about whatever topic it is was in Isaiah and it was on the left-hand side of the page near the top. And so as I'm flipping <laughs> through no, as I'm I'm flipping through, I see my highlight and mm-hmm. I can find the verse that way. So this idea of memorizing scripture or and also just kind of becoming familiar with where the Bible says what and and using highlighters and marks and so forth in my printed Bibles to be assuming anybody actually has printed Bibles anymore. Um, those were disciplines that were part of my life back then. Uh, is that something mm-hmm. that resonates with you also? Yeah, I never got into scripture memory, but I I could paraphrase it really well. <laughs> you know, like I, there was never a part where like Laura learned a couple like Philippians. My father-in-law has learned to recite every one of the 150 Psalms, not all together, but at times was reciting all of them. Really impressive stuff. And and the reason for that is not just, oh, you know, here's my checklist. The the reason why you want to memorize scripture, whether it's verbatim or just understanding it or really taking the stories in and, and knowing them. As you might, you might not need it in that moment, but I can't tell you the number of times where I've been in a situation where it was really trying or uh, troubling, and these stories or Jesus's words come to mind and they minister to me mm-hmm. in the middle of those seasons when I need them. But if I hadn't been storing this up in my heart, you know, I would have nothing coming to my mind when I needed them. Yeah. And so, you know, that that's the problem with with. With people who think, well, I don't really want to do that. I don't need it right now. And, and you know, the reality is, like, you, you're storing up the treasury of Scripture so that in every season, whatever may come, God can speak to you from His Word. There's mm-hmm. some relevant passage that you're able to pull to mind that encourages your heart or gives you instruction and wisdom for a season. And that's been invaluable. I've, that's been huge for me. I'm yeah. always when – I, when I hit a situation where I'm like, what in the world do I do with this? I am always trying to find the, a story in Scripture that would correlate to it that I can then draw wisdom from mm-hmm. and allow God to preach to me in that moment. You know, when it says that, that the word is 
living and active. It really is, mm-hmm. you know. And so to store that up in you, it's like when you hit those moments where you're like, "Man, this situation's hard. What do I do?" The living and active word that you have been storing up in your heart, the Lord is able to speak to you in that moment about exactly what you should do. And if you feel crushed, He's able to to lift your spirits and encourage you. Um, so it's yes, yeah, super valuable, and it's it's a habit that we've gotten away from, sadly. Yeah. And I do think that it's. It's it's again. It's part of that um, repetition thing. You know, how do you become familiar enough with what the Bible says in different areas of it? Well, you mm-hmm. read it. You read the same sections over and over again. You read them a lot, and it's not. You know, I mean, I can't always like do like I was doing just with Ephesians there a minute ago where I was quoting it. By the way, that's from the 1977 New American Standard Version, in case anybody wants to know <laughs> what version of the Bible I memorized that from. Um, but, the, you know, I'm familiar enough with it that, you know, it, because first of all, most things that people remember from the Bible will be something from the New Testament, something said by Paul. I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to lay it down there and say that most of the time, it's I'm like, oh yeah, that's Romans chapter 8, or that's Romans chapter 5, or that's Galatians chapter 3, or that's Philippians chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Um, because Paul just gave us so many of these, you know, what did we call them? Refrigerator magnet verses. Yeah. It's like... Quotables, yeah. They're, they're so quotable. Um, you know, I can do all things through Christ. Well, that's Paul. You know, it's like these kinds of things, you know, there is no more condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul. So he, he had those kind of very, um, quotable, memorable statements. Mm-hmm. But so the, the way that you become familiar with where those are is to read the scriptures and read those parts of the Bible over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that, you know, totally apart from the, the parables that we're going to be talking about, I think it would be really cool if one of the things that people thought about as they, you know, as we kind of talk about a parable that sounds a lot like the parable from last week is, you know, if Jesus thought that it was important enough to repeat things, maybe it's okay that I can read you know, Genesis more than once, you know, or something like that. You know, I can, mm-hmm. I can go back and read it. How many times would you say you've read the book of Genesis? Oh, man. Genesis is one of my favorites. I know. That's I why I asked. That's like, a, that's like asking lot. me about Romans, you know. It's like, but, but I'll tell you this. I never read it without feeling like I'm reading it for the first time in a lot of ways. Like yeah. God always reveals something new. He, and it's like when you read the scripture, one of the things that's cool about reading the scripture is the more you know, the more you're able to see. Mm-hmm. You know, the more you understand the whole story. Now all of a sudden when you go back and you read the beginning, you're like, oh, that makes even more sense in light of what I now know about, you know, some other right. book in the Bible. Right. Like, it brings things to light to where now when I read Genesis, it's like the gospel message is all over it, where the first time I read it, it wouldn't have seen any of that, you yeah. know? Um, and so the reward of reading scripture is that it just continually opens up to you. You will never reach the bottom of it. You'll never exhaust it. It just continually compounds with how brilliant it is. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really exhilarating to come and just see the the brilliance and wisdom of God that's that's throughout all this, all these books. Yeah, that's one of those prayers I think God will always answer, which is you know to give us a fresh word from this mm-hmm. passage of scripture. Um, I think that there's there is always something, and, and 
I will tell you that there's, you know, there's nothing that in, inspires me more. There's nothing that I get more excited about than having that experience where I read a passage that's very familiar to me and I see something for the first time. Mm-hmm. It is, it's, it's thrilling. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, now it's going to sound like people are going to be like, Mark, you're so sad. I'm like, that's not a sad life. <laughs> it is genuinely exciting to me. I'm mm-hmm. like, I've never noticed this before. And mm-hmm. I can spend hours chasing this down now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That happened to me again this weekend when I was going through Joshua 10 and found something that I'd never seen before, which then caused me to go dig deep everywhere else. And, you know, by the time I was finished with it, it was just an absolute awe yeah. of how awesome the Word of God is. Um, and, you know, I, I can remember the days when I first came to faith and I didn't know diddly squat in my early 20s where it was like, you know, back in the days where you open up the Bible and you say, God, speak to me and let your finger land somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and like, oh, this is the word that God has for me. And it's, you know, some random, <laughs> you know, thing. But the more you hide away in your heart, you don't need to just plop open the Bible and point somewhere and hope that he's got a word for you. It's, it's, it's there. It's totally accessible because you've been storing it up. You've, you've come to know his character. You've, you've gotten so familiar with his word that you could almost have a conversation with him and anticipate fully what he would tell you because you're so familiar with his character that's found in the word. That's the benefit of reading the words that he has to say is it's like, you know, if you live long enough with your wife or your husband or someone that you love and you're, you know, very, very intimate, you know, intimately, you can anticipate how they're going to respond to things, sure. right? You, you know sure. what they're going to say before they even say it. When you read the scriptures and you get to know the scriptures, guess what? It's no different. You can anticipate what it is the Lord would have for you, how he would respond. I talked about, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I talked about, uh, Bill Butterworth, a Bible college professor and camp speaker from my youth, and his statement, repetition is theological glue. That was one of his sayings, and it's probably not original with him. He probably heard somebody else say it, but that kind of took me back to that year of summer camp, those years of summer camp where you'd go to the youth camp over, you know, and with us, it was always, you know, because Florida Bible College is where we would go to these summer camps, and that was on Hollywood Beach at, at Hollywood Boulevard and A1A. So it's really tough, you know. Be like, "Hey, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to youth camp for the summer." Really? Where's it gonna be? On the beach, in Hollywood? Oh, I'll do that, you know. And so you had all these weird summer camp type songs, and there was uh, one of them that was that was called "I'll Fly Away." Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Mm-hmm. And one of the verses in that song is, "I read the book of Hezekiah. You read it too." That was a, that was one of the lines in there, and of course there is no book of Hezekiah, <laughs> and it, that was one of those gotcha moments where the new kids would always go I, Hezekiah, you're like yeah never mind I'll explain it to you later. <laughs> uh, but there is a there, now mind you there is a there are many characters named Hezekiah, but there's not a book Hezekiah. Uh, but it is something that uh, you know back then it was a it was a big deal for us like everybody would spend time to know the 66 books of the Bible in order. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because if I start talking about looking up something in Psalms, well, if you open your Bible and you're looking at 1 Samuel, do you turn to the right or to the left? When you, and again, that's less important now because you're like, you're saying, Mark, I just type Psalms in on my smartphone and it <laughs> finds the book of Psalms. And that's true. Um, but there is something I think that's maybe missing a little bit because 
We've gone away from these printed Bibles, and we don't see how these things are organized inside the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, major prophets, minor prophets, history books, it's like they were all grouped together, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think all of that is important, but I think the even greater thing is I can't, as a pastor, you know, I can't tell you when, when someone says, you know, I, I love God and our culture, that can mean just about anything. Yeah, um, because yeah, that's true. What has happened in our culture is we don't worship the God of the Bible. Um, there's a lot to wrestle with in the Bible. Um, there, there's things about his character, his justice, his holiness, his wrath, his love, his all these things. And and the Lord presents himself very clearly in his word. But so many times in counseling or other things, when I talk to somebody and they say, well, God's really important to me. I can tell you this happens in premarital counseling all the time. Where they're like, oh yeah, God is you know number one priority in my life, and then you start talking to them about what that means and looks like according to the scriptures, and you find out that they don't they don't serve the God of the Bible. They have invented in their mind a Stepford God, you know, mm. who who really amazingly agrees with them on everything, <laughs> um, you know, and and endorses all of their behaviors. And and so one of the things that the Bible should do, if the, if the Bible doesn't call you to stretch, if the God of the Bible isn't calling you to to do some things that you find uncomfortable, if He's not saying things that you in your flesh disagree with, then you've created a Stepford God. And the way to disabuse yourself of that is to get the note, get to know the God of the Bible. Otherwise, God just becomes a fig, figment of your own imagination, right. and you've made God in your image. Um, and that's dangerous. Yeah. You know, um, the Bible is a book that tells me, um, you you know, you can love yourself because God loves you, but you also can change. You know, this is a, it's a book mm-hmm. about growth. It's a book about change. It's about becoming conformed to the image mm-hmm. of Christ. I love that line. God, God loves you so much. He'll accept you as you are and loves you too much to leave you as you are. Yeah. You that know, is a good He one. will change you. He yeah, will change you. That is good. Well, um, that's the world's longest introduction to a parable. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and hey, look, the, the, the magic editing pen hasn't come out yet. So it certainly may not, you know, get the full 30 minutes there. But um, I think a lot of that is, is important stuff to, to think about. So, um, so we come to this parable, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. And it starts off, as Jesus says, and he told them, or Luke writing on, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. You know, and I thought to myself, just in that opening, you know, collection of verses there of the parable, I thought to myself, a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That's exactly who I want handling my case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is bad news because there's almost nothing you could do to get your way by by virtue. This this guy, he doesn't care what God has to say. He's not worried about ultimate justice. And he doesn't care what humans have to say. He's in it entirely for himself, Yeah, which means this is a corrupt judge who will do anything – for selfish gain. He's a bribable judge. He's somebody that's that's easy to sway with power and money. And so who comes to him? Is it somebody who has none of that? 
Right. You know, the widow comes, and of anybody in, in the first century world or ancient society who did not have power, did not have money, did not have status, you have no reason to fear her. It was it was the widow. And so it's saying, here, it's polar opposites. Here's a guy who's entirely self-absorbed, who has power, who has influence, who has all this stuff, and a widow's coming who has nothing that can bribe him. Yeah. She's coming entirely powerless. You know, um, was this judge, uh, was he likely to have been like, I don't know, like, from the Roman authorities, would this be, would this have likely been a a Jewish judge? I mean, are, is this a? I'm just trying to imagine whether this guy is like actually a legal part of the legal system of that day, or was he just sort of like a village elder? I wonder. So, um, so it said before. Remember when we were talking about the other parable, and it, we, it was talking about the inheritance. The guy cries out, "Tell my brother to give me yeah. the inheritance." Yeah, he was asking Jesus, right? And so the the elders or the Pharisees of that city, the priests, would be the ones who would who would settle those disputes. And so most commentaries that I've come across are saying this is somebody that's like a magistrate, probably an appointee of of Rome or Herod. Who is like you're appealing beyond the local elders? You're okay. appealing to to an official that is that is above your your local council. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking you almost have to get to the level of the Roman authorities to find somebody that cared not about God nor man. Mm-hmm. You know, right. because this is this would be somebody who, you know. In addition to everything else, had no fear of the repercussions of his mm-hmm. decisions because you know those soldiers outside, the ones with the swords that you guys don't have, but they do have. Yeah, they work for my <laughs> boss, so mm-hmm. we're good here. You know that kind of thing. And so that's that's the idea. There, she has no money to give him. She has no power, and even her influence among the people of her village, he's insulated from. He doesn't care what the Jews have to say. Yeah, if he's if he's Roman. What does she have that can move him off center? Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting that her plea that she comes to him with each time is, um, give me justice against my adversary. And you know, that's a word that – good grief. I don't even know if, I, I don't even know if, if, if we can get 10 people to agree on what it means anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this context, it just sounds to me like this is a woman – I think Jesus wants us to know that the widow was coming – with a reasonable request. She wasn't, she wasn't asking him to punish the adversary. She wasn't asking, you know, she was like, give me justice. You know, I just, mm-hmm. that's what I'm seeking. I'm just seeking justice. Um, and this guy, I, I you know, I, I sort of pick his response, verse four, where it says, for a while, he refused. I think that he, I kind of get from that almost like this, like he couldn't be bothered or, or maybe he was just amused. Hey, look, it's Clara again. Yeah, tell me your story again, Clara. Good. Listen, while you're telling me the story, I'm going to be drawing pictures here. But it's okay. I'm listening. I'm listening. Yeah. You know, that's exactly right. I yeah. mean, why be bothered? Yeah. My guess is that she would show up at the door, and he's like, "Nope, nope. I don't even want to hear from him. Nope. <laughs> don't let her in." Uh, but then it says, "But afterward, he said to himself." Though I neither fear God nor respect man, good that he good that he at least recognizes that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Just in case I was wondering, me, I neither fear God nor respect man. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Um, 
by the way, there are a couple of translations out there that I noticed that translate this so that she will not attack me. <clears throat> Let me be clear. I don't think there's anything he feared from the widow. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I do get the fact that the phrase is beat me down. That's, that's an accurate translation of the words. But what he's saying is that just because she's wearing me down, it's like I'm just, I'm weary of hearing from her. The Greek word there come, it's, it's hypopiasa and what it literally comes from hypo, which means under and then opa is the, the next root of the next word, which means eyes. And so it's like literally a verb that comes from under the eyes. And so people think, okay, that's either she's going to weary me. You know how when you get tired underneath your eyes, you, yeah, you're you baggy, you're dark. Your eyes. Sure, yeah. And so it's like she's going to wear me down, man. She's going to exhaust me to where under my eyes are you know, no good. I'm going to look exhausted. Yeah. Or other people say, is this like a black eye? She's going to... And I'm like you said, she's not coming with a baseball bat. You know, yeah. this <laughs> this isn't the widow seeking justice with a baseball bat. A woman would but, not attack a man. A widow would not attack a judge. And nobody's yeah, attacking a Roman judge. But they did have kind of the same way that we would talk about today. If you're talking about a public official, you know, if I said, you know, this could really give, you know, the, the mayor a black eye. <laughs> you know, you're not talking about a literal black eye, but it's saying, you know, she's going to shame me. Everybody's going to think that I'm totally irresponsible. They're going to see her coming down here every day. I don't want to deal with the fallout of having a political black eye. Um, and so either one of those makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't care which way it's translated. Both of them make sense. But I, I would let go of the idea of her attacking him. No. That's not, yeah, not, a, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but the interesting thing is that – and I think – I believe Jesus wants us to see this, which is – the judge makes a decision that is completely in line with his character. His character is to be self-centered. Mm-hmm. I don't fear God. I don't respect man. So who does he care about? Cares about himself. Mm-hmm. There's not anybody left. It's like, if I don't care what God <laughs> thinks and I've got no interest in what my fellow man thinks, that tells you that the only one I care about is me. And the result of that is, I'm going to make this decision because this is what benefits me at the present time. Whether it's mm-hmm. I just don't feel like her, you know, I'm just t- I'm tired of Clara knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. Whether that's what it is or whether as you say it's like I don't feel like dealing with the repercussions of people talking, why doesn't he help this widow? I just want her gone. I want to make the problem go away. So his his giving her justice wasn't because he thought she deserved justice. He didn't care. Mm-hmm. He was just acting in accordance with his nature. And I think that's important because I think that's what Jesus is about to tell us about God, is that God also acts in accordance with his nature. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, that's excellent point. Yeah. And this is, this is coming in what they call a, a how much more parable. Yeah. Where, where God, you know, like we, we talked about the, the unrighteous or the unjust steward or, mm-hmm. or the friend at midnight. There's so many of these parables where Jesus gives us kind of the earthly example of how we are, you know, self-absorbed and self-centered and doing things for self. And then, then it begs the question, how much more then, you know, how much better would God be? Yeah, and he says, uh, then Jesus continues, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God, so now we're comparing God to the unrighteous judge, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I think that the way that this parable ends is a little bit of a twist mm-hmm. um, because when, when we're listening to the prayer, we're thinking, okay, so this prayer is telling me to keep coming, keep knocking, keep banging on God's door until God answers what he's going to do because he says he's going to do that. Mm-hmm. But if that was the case, then Jesus would say, when the Son of Man comes, will he find people still praying? But that's not what he says. He's like, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And from that, the way I looked at this parable is that Jesus is saying to me, look, here's an unrighteous judge pestered by this widow who, acting in accordance with his nature, finally gives her justice. So Mm -hmm. here's God. How much more does God want to give you justice? So have faith in God's character. You keep praying because you don't lose heart. So why do you don't lose heart? You don't lose heart because you trust God's character. It's, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's a parable about God's character and about me having faith in that character. Totally. And, and this parable has this twist at the end where it's like, you know, here's this, this widow who's been relentless and pursuing justice. She will not give up. And so when we, how much better is our God, how much better is our judge that we should have faith and keep beseeching, you know, and keep asking and keep expecting that he is going to bring justice on the earth, especially for his elect. And so he, he comes with this twist, just like last week, if you remember, you know, the, the parable of the where, – where it's also encouraging persistence. And at the end of it, what does he say? He says – you know, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And you're like, wait a minute, that was seemed like a twist. Now we, he's we were talking about eggs and scorpions <laughs> and bread and stuff. Yeah. yeah, we're we're talking about the guy coming for the loaves of bread, and now you're promising the Spirit. And so what Jesus is changing? It's like he's he's twisting and saying like your expectations are too low, and and the the point of this parable, which I think is really helpful in understanding it, when this when this widow comes before the judge and she's like, "This world is harsh against me, and I'm looking for things to be made right. I'm looking for the scales to be righted. I'm, I'm looking for justice." And Jesus is is coming back saying, "Yeah, you should have that expectation." But Jesus offers this illustration. A parable as an illustration of what he's just taught on in Luke 17. So he gives the illustration in Luke 18, and we tend to treat parables like they're standalone, but he's offering this parable to illustrate the truth that came right before that when Jesus says this. And he's talking about the last days, and listen to what he says. The days are coming. This is verse 22 of Luke 17. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man but you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then he goes on to talk about the days of Noah. He talks about the days of Lot and Sodom. 
And why? So then he illustrates this whole thing with this parable of the persistent widow. And what he's saying is, and I love the line that's up there, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And so you've got to imagine the people who are begging for for the kingdom to come and all of its perfection, right? They're coming to Jesus like, oh, we're so tired of this world. It's too painful. When is When are you going to make all things right? When are you going to come in your glory? And his answer is, you know, you're going to desire to see it, but you may not see it. And then the rest of his teaching is saying that doesn't mean it's not on the way. It's, it's playing out even as you cannot see it. So keep asking because one day the kingdom with all of its glory and perfection and justice and everything, peace, all of the things that are coming are coming even though you might not see it right now. And so when the widow goes to the judge, we're supposed to have – you know she's dealing with someone who doesn't care about her. But when we go before the Lord, it's not just that we believe that justice is coming one day the Lord's going to get to it, right? but that even now he is carrying out his plan to bring about the perfect justice that we're longing for, Mm -hmm. that even now he is unfurling the course of history to bring about the greatest longings of our heart. He's not deaf to us right now, even though we may not see it, as he says, but it's coming. It is coming, and it's unfurling as we pray. And that adds a lot of power to those prayers. Mm -hmm. You're not finally waiting for God to go, okay, fine, I'll hear you. Even now, he's he's playing this answer, answer to your prayers and to the prayers of all the saints. He's Mm -hmm. he's playing that out right now. Mm -hmm. That's good. So then Jesus moves on right into a second parable. In verse 9 of chapter 18, where he said, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I, I just want to point out, it says that he told this parable not about some, although it is about them, mm-hmm. but to some. So in other words, there were Pharisees there, and Jesus was going to tell a parable to the Pharisees. So it's like, yeah. he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I, I think that's fascinating right there. You know, what? It, how does he describe the judge and the previous parable? It's like, you know, they 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 don't fear God. Right. And, and they don't, don't care about man. man. Right. And so here it's like, here are some that believe that you're righteous. Well, what does that mean? If you, if you think you deserve God's favor, guess how much fear of him you have? None. You know, none. So here, I regard myself as righteous. God owes me. And he's talking, by the way, largely to Pharisees here. And he's saying, you know, these are people who don't fear God. And by the way, they treat others with contempt. They are no different than the judge of the previous parable. Yeah. They, they don't fear God, and they have no regard for others. You're right. That, that description connects perfectly. They don't mm-hmm. fear God, and they obviously have no regard for their fellow man because they treat them with contempt. Mm-hmm. So, so get this, as Jesus is teaching, because when you come out of that, it's like, okay, well, he's just talked to us about an unjust judge and this widow, and everybody hears that story, and you want to identify with the one who is heard, right? Like, right. oh, yeah, that, that wicked judge. And what he's saying is, before you get too comfortable, <laughs> some of you are the wicked judge in this parable. Yeah, yeah. And you will not be heard. And he sets it up. Verse 10, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, I was so struck by Jesus's it's just a short description there, but he tells us <laughs> he tells us so much because the first thing he tells us is that the Pharisee was standing by himself. Pharisees, he wanted – it's like I want to call attention to myself. I'm going to mm-hmm. step off to the side here where you can see me. And the nature of his prayer, it's really clear that he's not talking to God. He's talking to everybody who's around him. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and he starts off, I thank you. And usually when you thank someone, it's followed by something that they have done. Yeah. But, but he starts his prayer, God, I thank you for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm so amazing. Like, thank you for me being so amazing. Like, yeah. he is very much about chasing after the opinions of others and making sure that everybody knows that he is superior to them. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty gross. Um, it's a gross prayer. Because there's a question that I raised in personal worship where I basically was suggesting that the Pharisees didn't really care whether people liked them or not. What they cared mm-hmm. about was whether they were respected for their quote-unquote righteousness and whether they were considered – whether people looked at a Pharisee and go, yeah, he's a jerk, but you know, he is better than you and me. You know, mm-hmm. He keeps the law and we can't. So I I really don't think that – and maybe this is the Mark version of the Bible again where I'm reading between the lines. But I've never had the sense that the people loved the Pharisees. I think they respected them. I think they understood that the Pharisees were the best at keeping the law. And the Pharisees were satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. They were like, I don't need you to love me. I just need you to admit I'm better than you. But but if you went back in a time machine, you know, yeah. you had – because they weren't just religious sects. You had the Pharisees. You had the Sadducees. You had the Herodians, you, mm-hmm. you know, different Essenes. And all of these parties came along. But if you were to go to who the people's favorite was, let's pretend, you know, it's parliament or congress. There would have been more Pharisees than any other sect. They were by far the party of the of the people that had the respect – and of the people, mm-hmm. more than Sadducees, more than Herodians, the Pharisees were the popular sect of their yeah. day, which is surprising because when we hear Pharisee, it's always a negative association. Sure. And so when people would get around Pharisees, the whole point was, oh my gosh, I need to like get away from them because they're better than me and right. whatever. But they stood for all the traditional values and and making Israel, you know, thinking back to the great heritage that had come from David and wanting to restore all of that and being very much about the law and being different than all these foreigners. And and that really resonated in the first century. So people people believed his own press like they were like ooh pharisee and and I'll grant you that I'm I'm all in I'm all in on this idea that they were respected that they were uh, you know what but I just have a hard time imagining is it's, it's it's like you know I really enjoy hanging around with Sam he makes me feel really bad about myself I love <laughs> Sam you know, they're lonely, no doubt. Yeah. Lonely people. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm getting at is that these guys were satisfied within themselves. And I think mm-hmm. that that's another way that they're like the unrighteous judge. The unrighteous judge, he didn't need the approval 
of anybody else. He just the, the reason he decided in favor of the widow was just for his own sake. Mm-hmm. And I think the Pharisees are that same kind of very self-centered it's like is if if they feel good about themselves and other people concur, yep, you're better mm-hmm. than us, you know. And I got to tell you, that is a pitiable life. Yeah. And when I first got into ministry, I was going to seminary, I had a position on staff in a ministry. And I was an undiagnosed Pharisee at the time. And I will tell you, seriously. <laughs> I like that, an undiagnosed Pharisee. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. But I was you know, doing things in secret. So, for example, I was, I was smoking, but I didn't want anyone to know that I was smoking because I wanted to preserve my, my image in, in the public. And so I would do it in secret, and I would avoid things that if I smelled like smoke because I didn't want to be around them. And I was doing other things, you know. Going out and drinking. When I would go up to Vero, I'd go out with my friends, and I would do all these things. And yet, when I would come back home, the the role that I had in ministry was writing about cultural issues, and they're cultural issues that, by the way, I still have very strong convictions on. But my job as a writer at the time was to write about them in such an adversarial stance as to say, "Look at what they're doing to our country. Look at what they're doing to the church." And I remember being in a seminary class where Dr. Gage was teaching, and it was Luke 7, the story of uh, the, the woman washing Jesus' feet in the home of a Pharisee. And he said, I just want you to stop for a moment and realize how miserable it must be to be a Pharisee. You can't ever let anyone know your flaws. You can't ever let anyone know that you struggle. And by the way, we all do. So you know this Pharisee struggles. You know that he's got heartache. You know that he's got pains of a fallen world. But no one can ever, ever, ever know. And so he walks around with the burden of pretending like he's good enough all the time in front of everybody so that he can have their applause. But he's dying a million deaths of loneliness, and this is what it would be like for him. And I remember he was he started describing me to a T. Loneliness, anxious, anxious, terrified of being known, terrified of being found out. And I had to actually get up out of my seminary class and I went into the bathroom of the seminary at Knox and I just fell apart. Mm. And I was like, that's me. I am I'm I'm that guy. Like I don't relate to the broken. I don't show my scars and my flaws. I don't show that I need Jesus every bit as desperately as the most broken of people. I don't relate to the whore. I don't relate to the leper. I don't relate to the people that are left out. I really do hold myself as better than everyone else. And it was one of the most crushing, beautifully crushing moments that I've had in all my life. And so you look at a Pharisee like this who's always got to win everyone else's opinion all the time, can never let his guard down, can never be imperfect. Imagine how enslaving that life would have to be. Sure, It's gross. Well, I didn't expect to feel sympathetic for the Pharisee, but uh, <laughs> you've, you've done that. Um, I, you know, it, it, you're right. It has to be a very lonely existence, you know. Mm-hmm. And we live in that world, by the way. I, I did a men's breakfast on this where I talked about the two sides of narcissism. And, and one of them is grandiose narcissism. So you look at the clinical definitions, and grandiose narcissism is this guy. It's, I want to be the center of attention. I want everyone bowing down to me. Look how amazing I am. I'm not as bad as everyone else. Look at all the stuff I do. And then in the clinical definition, the other side of narcissism is something called vulnerable narcissism. So there's not a lot of people that can relate to this guy as a grandiose narcissist where he's up on the stage but we have a t- 
ton of what are called vulnerable narcissists. And what a vulnerable narcissist is, is they might not feel comfortable being up on the stage, but they process everything they do through, what are people going to think of me? Uh, I better change my profile pics. I, d- I don't want anyone to be angry. I, I, need to, I need to perfect society. I need to make sure that everything that has to do with me is perfect. And if anyone ever does anything that I'm uncomfortable with, it's going to send me tailspinning into anxiety. And I need to create safe spaces and everything else because nothing in my life is allowed to go poorly. I need to Put all over my Instagram and everywhere else these pictures that make everybody think that I have the perfect life, and it's hypersensitive. It is totally crushing in the other direction. It's extremely lonely in the other direction, but it's driven not by arrogance, which is what we tend to think of with a narcissist, but it's vulnerability. It's somebody who feels like they will never measure up, but the whole universe still needs to revolve around me. And both of those are every bit as crippling on either side of the same coin. And what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's disabusing both, really. This is not about you. It's not. You know, the other thing that I uh, talked a little bit about in in personal worship for this particular day, I think it was day four, um, which people haven't gotten to yet. So (laughs) they will have gotten there by the time they hear the podcast, though. Um, where it says, you know, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this, like this tax collector. Um, he fasts twice a week. He gives tithes of all that he gets. The Pharisee wasn't wrong. Like, in other words, everything the Pharisee was saying about himself, I'm sure he wasn't an extortioner, that he Mm -hmm. wasn't an adulterer. I'm even sure that in his mind, he wasn't unjust. He certainly wasn't anything like the tax collector, because the tax collector was ripping off his own people, you know. And so this Pharisee, you know, it's – I think that it's important for us to to recognize that when we start looking at people who are – you know, we – it's it's the lack of humility. Mm-hmm. It's not that you know the Pharisee was doing the right things, but he was doing them without without any humility at all. He was completely mm-hmm. full of pride. He believed that God that that he had a good standing with God and one that he deserved because of of how he was keeping <laughs> the law. And you know, you talked about your job. Uh, writing about cultural issues and you were supposed mm-hmm. to be advocating for a particular point of view. Mm-hmm. One of my things that that I struggle with so much today about media on both the right and the left, I'm not going to let either one off the hook here, is that when they're advocating for their position, they do it with a total lack of humility. Mm-hmm. It's like they are just – it's just all about the other guy. It's all about mm-hmm. savaging the other guy. It's all about attacking the other guy. I'm, mm-hmm. in, I'm telling you why I'm right, and I'm right mostly because they are so wrong. Mm-hmm. Man. And there's no, there's no interest into trying to find a benefit of the doubt to offer some perspective that's in there that right. might be noble from the other person's position. We were talking about this right before we came on yeah. with a particular story. And it's, it's infuriating when both sides do that. And what it does is it makes us get rid of our humanity. And so, you know, one of the funny things is the Pharisees, I think he believes his own press. He's like you said, he's not an extortioner. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer, you know, in the, in the sense that he understands that. Right. He is, he is tithing. He is fasting. I think he's doing all those things. 
But the irony is, is when he gets up and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, the fact that he said those words means he's exactly like every other man. <laughs> really? You're right. Because You're absolutely right. That's true. Why does, why does he need to say that? Because right. he feels wildly inadequate. Yep. You don't get up and say, I thank you that I'm not like other men, and do it so that everybody can see you and you're standing by yourself unless you're coming to that moment feeling like you don't measure up. Yeah. I need affirmation and validation from this crowd, and so I'm going to get up because I don't have it. And so the Pharisee unknowingly is coming and saying, I don't measure up. I'm doing all these things. I have all these things. I'm obedient in all these things, and yet I need validation because this isn't enough. Where can I find it? And so he tries to, to impress everybody around in the crowd because at the bottom of himself, he is entirely insufficient mm-hmm. like it's there's the, he's not fulfilled he is not satisfied and that's a pharisee you know it's the slavery you know it's interesting that you say that because um one of the one of my habits with when laying out personal worship is i try to come up with a clever title for each day to try to, try to you know just because that helps me have a mental hook for what that day is about. And the title for day four was, I love me some me. <laughs> yes, and, I... and then that's a quote uh, from a former NFL wide receiver named Terrell Owens. And Terrell Owens had moved from team to team and he had gone from the 49ers to the Cowboys. I mean, arch rivals, right? And he had gone, when he was a 49er, he had like, defaced the Cowboys star, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of the football. And then he goes to play for the Cowboys. And then he went from the Cowboys to the Eagles, who's the arch enemy. <laughs> so this guy, whether he just didn't care or whether he thought it was fun to do that, he managed to be hated by everybody everywhere in the fan base. And so he, when he would do something good, great play of some kind, he'd come to the sideline and he'd get – you know, he'd shout up at the crowd, I love me some me. Like, I know what I'm about. I know I'm good. I'm, and yet, you, so you, you may look at that and say, that man is supremely self-confident. And yet, as his career began to wind down and his athletic skills made him less in demand, you know, people will put up with your foolishness if you can run and catch a football. Mm-hmm. And as those things, it's like, it's like stuff just began to fly apart. You know, the news media descends on him because is he leaving the team and he's doing sit-ups in his driveway surrounded by the news media, one of the most surreal, bizarre press conferences I've ever seen. And, <laughs> you know, and I don't know where Terrell Owens is in his personal life right now. I hope that he's gotten much better, that he's gotten past all of his issues and everything else. But it is clear that the bravado of I love me some me and as long as I know I'm good, that's all that matters, that was skin deep. That mm-hmm. when the career began to unwind, a whole lot of Terrell Owens seemed to be flying apart at the seams. And I, I want to say, that's probably not unlike that Pharisee. It's like he's mm-hmm. putting up a good show, but like you say, the fact that he says I'm not like other men says he is exactly like mm-hmm. other men. And absolutely insecure about it. Yeah. So... So then we have the tax collector, the other, the other half of this story, verse 13. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting thing because right there that tells me that he is so ashamed 
that he's not even really going to come into the temple area. It's like he's he's just hanging around barely inside, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding of the temple from that time, and I think I'm right about this, is the further in you went, the more important that area was. It's like the more, the, the more holy, the better, you know, only the really high priest could go to the absolute center, to the most holy place. But just in general... Anybody could be in that outside area of the temple. They let Gentiles in there, you know. Mm-hmm. But to get further in, you had to feel, you know, you were a Jew. You were, you know, I'm here. And this guy is like hanging back. Like he doesn't even – that just – I mm-hmm. get the feeling this guy is like really feels some shame. Yeah, and the the way that Luke has put this together, the way that Jesus is preaching this, you're meant to understand it. So it says the Pharisee standing by himself. Why? Why is he standing by himself? Because he's so far in that he's in the elite, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but but he he prays loud enough for everybody to hear. <laughs> Top of his lungs, I guarantee it. On on the flip side, the tax collector is also by himself in some sense because he's standing so far outside. Yeah. So it's. It's giving you the polar opposites of characters. Yeah. And it says that the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. I I missed the King James there, smote. I was like, ooh, he smote his breast. Uh, But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the the ultimate sinner's prayer right there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's, you know, this is another one of those, you know, to us today, because we've heard so much bad about Pharisees, you know, it's like we we just, in, in our little, you know, Western church culture brain, when we hear the word Pharisee, it's all this negative connotation. It's all of this, um, you know, oh, yeah, if you need a jerk at the party, invite a Pharisee. He's going to be the jerk, that kind of thing. But it wasn't so in that time. You know, I said, I said, if you took a poll of, of 100 Jewish men, stopped 100 Jewish men on the street and said, who is more likely to inherit eternal life, a Pharisee or a tax collector? I said, that would be 100 to zero in the favor of the Pharisee, right? <laughs> True. You know, even if you didn't like him, Sam, you still thought that guy is going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, tax collectors, I mean, even the reason why this guy is probably outside is I don't think the Jews would have let him in. Yeah. Uh, the tax collectors were so hated because they were traitors. They would expose everybody's wealth. They were taking kickbacks and stealing from people and giving money to Rome, taking massive kickbacks for themselves. They were known to be really awful people. Um, and so, and they were hated for it. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, when we when we read the end of this, we 21st century Western Christians, we don't see that this is a twist ending. But this is a twist mm-hmm. ending again. To Massively. The, to the people then, Sam, to the Jews then, they would have to be like, what? Mm-hmm. The what? The, the who was justified? <laughs> and the crazy thing is, like verse 14, really, if you understand the theological implications of what Jesus is saying here – it should it should really shock us because when he says this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee, that word justified is it, it means made righteous. He's declared righteous. So it's like so the the first parable that we got into at the beginning of 
Luke 18 is about a judge and a judge ruling over a case between this widow and her adversary, right? And so here, Jesus is essentially saying, like, one of these men is declared righteous and the other one not. He's, again, we're seeing that this is a case at law. This, this, there's a, like, something going on here. And right. Jesus says this simple prayer that's offered up by this man who comes to the end of himself, recognizes that his life and everything that he has offered, his sin is great. He's a mess and he's coming before the temple and he's thinking, I am totally not worthy of your mercy because the Pharisee thinks he's absolutely entitled to God's favor. But this tax collector comes with this repentant, remorseful heart, recognizing that everything he's done and has to offer before the Lord is not enough. It falls short, and he offers up that simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he believes that God will hear him. He believes that God is faithful. He believes that he falls short, but he believes that God is merciful, and he acknowledges himself a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man is declared righteous at that time. Moment. In other words, he is in the kingdom of God. He's mine, and the other one will go home not. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, that is a big statement about salvation there. Yeah. He's Zacchaeus. Yeah, that's exactly right, which is you know. going to be on the, on the heels of this story. Yeah. There's an interesting thing, too, about in, in terms of kind of like – the different religions, you know, one of the things that separates maybe Protestant, you know, things descended from the Reformation from other religious systems is this idea of, you know, what is the process of salvation? And, and I've heard it described that, you know, well, it's, 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 we believe that it's, you know, God through his, through his grace and his spirit working together with man to put man into a state in which he's worthy of eternal life. It's like, it's like, it's like Christianity or this kind of Christianity becomes a sort of self-help renovation program. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, one of the distinctives of, of the Protestant Reformation was I'm not made you know, I, I'm declared worthy. I'm not rehabilitated. God doesn't put a fresh coat of paint on me. It's like He steps in and says, "You've got my righteousness. You are you are declared worthy." You know, for, for, and for one thing, I'm kind of like because there would have been a lot of fixing up to do with me. <laughs> and by the way, stuff's always breaking down. Yeah. So, well, and and you know, and the other side of the argument, they acknowledge that. That's one of the reasons why you got to keep it up, right? You got to keep up everything that you're doing and if you slack off, well then we can't give you any assurance of your salvation because we don't know, you know. It's like and one of the things to me, so so you're like, "Well, oh, Mark, you're making it sound awfully easy." You're making it sound like uh, all I got to do is just, yeah, sure. You mean all I got to do is admit that I'm a real, you know, bad guy and I get to go to heaven? Sure, I'm a bad guy. Now do I get to go to heaven? Like, no. If that's what you think I'm saying, you're missing something because you got to look at what happened with Zacchaeus, right? Mm-hmm. When, when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and he found forgiveness, he stepped up and he said, hey, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll give it back to them fourfold. It's like – Genuine, a genuine converted heart, somebody who really finds grace and forgiveness and they find that justification, it's going to have an effect on them. You're not going to, you know, this is not a get out of jail free card, 
You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't free to begin with. Jesus paid for it. But this is one of those things where when, when there's a genuine encounter, hey, there's going to be a tax collector with a changed attitude there. Mm-hmm. And that word in the Greek that's behind merciful is used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used – so that isn't the normal word for merciful. It's found in Hebrews, the other one, and it's translated as atonement. And so this isn't making sin cheap. It's saying, God, you need to be atonement for me. Yeah. You need to be the one who takes the cost of my sin yeah. because I'm a sinner. So it's not coming to sin with like a, a flippant, oh, God, just you know, deal with this. You yeah. know, t- take it away. This is, it's, it's costly. It requires an atonement, and he recognizes that. Yeah. Um, and so if you look where Jesus goes or where Luke goes with this, the, the, the several next stories, you know, you mentioned Zacchaeus, who's this rich tax collector, kind of on the nose, right, who has this repentant moment and gives everything, is willing to walk away from all of his power and all of his wealth to, to follow after Jesus. And before that, you've got two other stories. One is little children, you know, where Jesus is like, you know, it's the weak, it's the vulnerable, it's the humble that come to me. And there's, you know, to get the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child. You have to know that all of the things come from the Father's hand. You have to be totally dependent. You have to be humble, the heart of a child. And then the next story after that is the rich young ruler. And here it is again. You have a guy who comes and he's like, I'm moral. I've kept the law. I have tons of power. I have tons of money. And it's like he's still coming to Jesus saying, but I need something more. Can, can you show me how to get eternal life? Something in me, is it, it's missing. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is going to have a conversation with him and essentially say, like, you've got to displace what you consider to be the gods in your life and allow me to sit on the throne of your heart and this guy has too much money. And so he walks away sad. And so all of these stories are coming and they're saying that the key to get the kingdom of heaven is recognizing your need. It is humbling yourself in the sight of God. It's walking away from everything that you find your identity in that's all going to perish and placing your entire identity in Christ, mm. like Zacchaeus did, like little children who flock to him and you know just recognize their neediness. You don't have to, like Caleb never comes home and says, hey, dad, what do I have to do to get fed? You know, he trusts in the character of his father that his father's going to feed him. And that's what you have to be like. It's, it's a child. You recognize, I can't do it on my own. I'm not going to go out and get a job. I can't, I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. I have to come to my father recognizing his character, like you said, and wholly trusting that he is going to take care of me. Yeah. He is going to deliver me. He is going to give me justice. He is going to give me the bread I need and trusting in that with my whole heart. Because I am insufficient and inadequate to do it on my own. Yeah. Well, that's a good word, and I think it's one we're going to end on. Now, folks, we hope you've enjoyed your time with us, that uh, that it's been profitable for you, that you've enjoyed today's talk about the, these two different parables, as well as our uh, rather long-windedness on the subject of repetition and scripture memory and so forth. Uh, hopefully, we didn't make anybody feel guilty, but we just encouraged you maybe to uh, take up some of those practices. Um, if you would like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com. Uh, that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash 
Out of Water. You can also find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as in our own Rio Vista Church smartphone app for your iOS or Android device. Sam and I will return next week with another from the series, He Gave Us Stories, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.